Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, March 21st, 2014. Yeah, this program's all over the map again. Doing that a lot lately. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Why? Because there's no shortage of really, and I mean, off the chart, crazy things being said about God and his word, and all of it is completely needless. Think of it this way, is that if Christians are disciples, and well, Jesus said to the church, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, just work with me on the logic here. And Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Okay, now work with me. This in theological categories is what we call the threefold office of Christ. He's prophet, priest, and king. In fact, let me, in fact, let me while I'm doing this, let's take a look at uh, something here. Um, there in the Old Testament, there is uh, one of the um, tests, if you would, and um, and one of those tests is regarding um, a prophet. Mm-hmm. And uh, how you can know whether or not a prophet is a true prophet or false prophet. But work with me here. I, we're going we're gonna to talk about kind of Christ in his threefold office. Prophet, priest, king. Prophet, priest, king. And uh, we'll, let's take a look at Jesus' prophetic office, which was prophesied by none other than Moses himself. Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll start at verse 15. Here's what it says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. To him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let, not, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like me from among 
their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay, so there's the prophecy. I mean, one of the major prophecies regarding Jesus being a prophet, prophet, priest, and he's our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he didn't offer the blood of animals for the forgiveness of our sins. No, what what was offered was his own blood. So we talk about Jesus in his priestly office. He's our king. Uh, he is uh, enthroned in the you know on the throne of David forever. One of the sons of David, direct descendants of David, prophet, priest, and king. But here in Deuteronomy 18, we have this express idea that Christians, you know, not just Christians, anybody who's a believer, um, that there was going to be this prophet who raises who's going to be raised up just like Moses, right? And he, God's going to raise him up, and we are to listen to him, okay? Now, work with me for a second here. Just as the, that's just kind of foundation, and if, if I, I apologize if my thoughts are all over the place, but, you know, I, you know I've been reading some things and actually kind of, you know, using the radio time to here to decompress these ideas as we jump into today's topic, and then I make also announcement regarding a speaking engagement I have in two weeks from now, but let me, let me I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, so we got this idea. God is Jesus' is prophet, priest, king, were to listen to him. Now, imagine if you were a first century convert to Christianity from Judaism. Okay? Uh, you know, you were you were raised in uh, in Israel. You you know followed the synagogue practices and things like that, or maybe you were part of the dispersion, and uh, maybe you lived in Athens or you lived in Rome or Ephesus, and and you know you attended synagogue there, and you came to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the prophet that Moses said was coming. Right? How would you then be catechized, taught, discipled into the Christian faith? Answer. Well, probably one of the first gospels you would have read, and one of the early, you know, one of the early gospels early on, uh, we know this from the uh, uh, the writings of Papias, was the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew, as you, as you read it, you can tell he really has an audience in mind that is well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. And so, what would happen is, is that let's say the apostles were still alive. Who would the apostles be telling you about? And you're thinking, well, how would we know? Answer, you look at the Gospels. Who do the Gospels tell the story about? Is it about them? Well, yeah, they do make kind of cameo appearances. They're part of the story. But the story they're telling is not their own. The story they're telling is the story of Jesus, how he came to be, the prophecies that he fulfilled, how he was born, where he was born, what he did what he taught, what happened to him, you know, who challenged him, how he challenged them back. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the Gospels are just chock full of details. In other words, um, you would be catechized into the teachings, the words, and everything that Jesus said, did, and taught, and all of that. And you would have, you know, you, you would encounter Jesus on in that way, due to the fact that he had ascended already, and uh, 
And he's, you know, in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. And uh, from thence, he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. But you, as a new convert to Christianity, being discipled then, would have been sitting under the teaching of the apostles and what the apostles taught, or who they taught about constantly was Jesus. So that the catechumens, that's fancy term that we've lost sight of here, you know, those disciples who are being catechized into the Christian faith, this is in many senses probably prior to their baptism, prior to their admission to the Lord's Supper, you are being taught the doctrines of the Christian faith, being taught the words of the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, right? And Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. So in his prophetic office, he's preaching to us. He's teaching us. How is he doing that? He's teaching us through the words of the disciples. He's teaching us through the the apostles, which is the apostolic teaching, which we find in the gospels as well as in the epistles. He's, Jesus is the one who's teaching us, and he's teaching us about himself. He's teaching us about what he's done for us. He's teaching us about our condition. He's teaching us that you know, that Christianity is daily repentance, daily taking up your cross, daily following him, daily asking him for, for you know, for daily bread and, and all of our needs, and daily being really enriched and marinated, if you would, kind of a weird word here, but you know, I'm looking for metaphors, in everything about him, right? So that he is our king, he is our prophet, and the people who are teaching us, they're not kings over us. They're not lords over us. They are servants of Jesus as Jesus is teaching us through them, right? Well, something's gone terribly wrong in Christianity, and that is, is that Christians, people who call themselves Christians, they're named after Christ, claim to be Christ followers and things like that. They're not being catechized into the words of Jesus. Uh-huh. And yet Deuteronomy eighteen nineteen says, Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. They're not being taught all that Jesus did, all that Jesus commanded, all that Jesus said. Instead, you know, the, you show up on any given Sunday and you got one verse ripped out of context from here, one verse ripped out of context from there, another one ripped out of context from there. And who is the pastor really preaching about? He's not preaching about Jesus because he's not preaching Jesus' words and deeds and the things that he's done. No, the pastor is then preaching about himself and teaching his disciples to think about themselves. It's kind of a theology of self-actualization, self-deification. But when that happens, is he really pointing us to the words of our prophet, our priest, our king? The answer is no, not at all. And so then the pastor is no longer an under-shepherd under the good shepherd. When a pastor preaches himself, his own message, his own words, and rather than preaching the words of Christ and catechizing and instructing people in Jesus's thoughts and words and deeds— um, well, then what's happened is, is that that pastor has become a little antichrist, a little um, satanic mm, pope, if you would, a uh, little satanic you know, false king, false prophet, and false priest. 
enslaving people rather than setting them free. I mean, it's something to think about, something to think about. In fact, I might tease this out a little bit more. Um, Two weeks from tomorrow, that's right. Um, Two weeks from tomorrow, I will be in Seward, Nebraska. And you can get the details about this at fightingforthefaith.com. If you go there right now, fightingforthefaith.com, there is a super ugly, and I mean terribly designed, poster for this event with these really obnoxious colors, Uh, red on blue, blue on red. It's just blah. Okay. But um, there you will find that uh, in uh, in April, on Saturday, April 5th, I will be lecturing at Mighty Fortress Evangelical Lutheran Church in Seward, Nebraska. Okay. The doors open at nine in the morning. The lectures are free. Um, We will have, uh, I'll have Two lectures in the morning, lunch break. Lunch is not provided by the church. They they do not have the budget for that, but uh, uh, there'll be an hour lunch break. And then after the lunch break, um, two more sessions. And I will be lecturing on the work of the Holy Spirit. It may not be what you think. The work of the Holy Spirit, it may not be what you think. And so if you would like to attend, um, the information is at fightingforthefaith.com. The work of the Holy Spirit, it may not be what you think. And uh, you can get uh, the address of Mighty Fortress Evangelical Lutheran Church in uh, Seward, Nebraska. And if you have the opportunity to be there on Saturday, April 5th, um, I begin lecturing at 9.30. Doors open at 9 in the morning. Again, admission is free. I'd love to see you, and uh, and hopefully you'll be able to make it out there. So um, just want to let you know. It, and yes, you know, we, we will definitely be recording uh, the uh, the lectures and uh, my hope is that for those of you who can't make it to the middle of Nebraska, <laughs> the Nebraska during uh, the the early week of you know, first week of April, that uh, instead uh, you know yes you'll be able to listen to it. We will be recording it. But if you have the opportunity to come out and to uh, I would love the opportunity to meet some of y'all. It's a great uh, way to do it. So again, the work of the Holy Spirit, it may not be what you think. Um, uh, Again, April 5th, 2014, Mighty Fortress Evangelical Lutheran Church in Seward, Nebraska. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. This is one of those episodes where we're going to be a little, it's going to seem like we're all over the map. Um, And well, probably because we are. So here's what we're going to be doing today. In the first hour, we've... (laughs) I'm going to have to play my warning. We're going to we're going to begin with a Patricia King update. I mean, a full-blown Patricia King update. And have you ever heard of the ox anointing? Mm-hmm. I haven't either until now. We will be listening to Patricia King not only describe the ox anointing, but also her personal experiences of the ox anointing itself. She apparently has received the ox anointing and... <laughs> All I can say is that I will play our warning before we get to this segment. And if you hurt yourself because you haven't heeded the warning because of what you're going to hear, I'm sorry, but your blood is on your own hands. That's all I've got to say. We'll take a break. And then when we come back, we got a couple of things we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at, um, well, uh, a guy by the name of Brian Powers from his uh, television program, entitled uh, Miracles Today, 
at, from Brian Powers Ministries talking about uh, anointed prayer cloths. And uh, this, I think I'm going to end up taking a portion of this video and putting it in the Museum of Idolatry because it's really that bad. But uh, it gives me the opportunity to kind of correct a, a bad teaching here. Uh, then we're going to take a listen to a Brian Houston quote uh, recently from uh, one of the Hillsong conferences where, no joke, um, Brian Houston said, it came right out of his mouth, that uh, Muslims and Christians serve the same God. And uh, and then to round out the hour, we'll take a quick look at a Charisma Magazine article that uh, is talking about the enemy within Christianity. And uh, it's not what you think. Um, the enemy within Christianity, according to this Charisma, uh, Charisma News story, which is really just a press release that they've just re-ran, um, is, uh, well, the, the enemy is like people like me or Janet Mefford. And yeah, yeah, I'll have to read you the article. And then in hour number two, we're going to, uh, just, you know, take a hard swing into two good sermons, one by Brent Kuhlman and the other by a pastor, Jeremy Rohde. And both of them are just ridiculously fantastic sermons. So I'm excited to end the week off that way. And we've got a ton of ground to cover, but because of the nature of what it is that you're about to hear from Patricia King regarding the ox anointing, I am required, probably by our legal department, to play this warning. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You have been warned. That's all I've got to say. Here we go. So are you ready to hear the details of the ox anointing? I mean, this is an anointing I had no idea even existed until today. And Patricia King is here to explain to us her personal experiences under the ox anointing. Mm-hmm. Here. <laughs> Here we go. Today, I have a message on the ox anointing. Uh-huh. See, first words out of her mouth. We're three seconds in, and already all of you should be, like, standing at attention going, what? And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians 4. Mm-hmm. And it says in verse 11. All right. Hang on a second here. Let's. If she's going to quote a Bible passage. Ephesians 4. She's going to start at verse 11 which is the middle of a paragraph. Okay, let's let's see what she does with it, and we'll clean it up a little bit. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some yeah. as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, let me let me stop right there. I mean, great passage, okay? 
So let's back it up a little bit. Let's apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. Take a look at what's going on here and uh, see, you know, kind of where she put the emphasis on this particular syllable to see if it, it makes any sense in the context. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? He who all who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave, this is Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now notice here, the focus of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, and by the way, there are no living apostles anymore. If you, in order to be an apostle, you have to actually have been an eyewitness of Jesus's resurrection, been around since he's, you know, since he was walking the earth. And the apostle Paul is an abnormally born apostle who is also an eyewitness to the resurrection. He, you know, he meets that qualification. There are no apostles today. The prophetic office it doesn't really exist. Um, it's, it's vacated, if you would. What are left are evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And let me point this out here. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, they are the ones who are tasked with the job of of catechizing and teaching people the apostolic teaching. So now that we have the foundation laid of the apostles and the prophets, we as 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 shepherds, teachers, evangelists in you know within the body of Christ, we don't have any new messages that we're to give. Instead, we're to we're to give the apostolic message until Christ returns. And so where do you want if you were to go to where would you go to find Jesus' teaching in his deeds? Answer, the apostolic record, the apostolic teachings in the New Testament. So shepherds, teachers, and evangelists, their jobs to preach and teach the apostolic teaching, the prophetic word found in the Old Testament. You know, the apostles, you know, the prophets were up until Jesus, and now that Jesus has come, you know, we don't got a bunch of prophets or apostles running around. Those are gone, okay? You know, that's... You can think of if this was a multi-stage rocket, um, the the prophets got got us off the ground. The next the next the stage was the apostles, and now that they've fallen off, we continue now propelling the church as evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. We're burning off the fuel that we got from the apostles and prophets, but we got no new revelation coming. That's the idea. And here's the idea: verse twelve to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until, until what? Till we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Ah, okay, so now the shepherds and teachers and evangelists are to equip everybody and bring them up in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's why we were to preach the word. Okay, to the, you know, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Who's our head? Christ. What are we supposed to be teaching people? About Christ. Okay, full knowledge of Jesus. Mature manhood is your, is your deeper knowledge and understanding of Christ and his work in the prophets and the apostles. You know, the Old and New Testament, if you would. Yeah, that's what this text is saying. It's a great text. And notice here the warning against being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That would be false doctrine. And human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, Patricia didn't get us to that part. And the reason why she didn't is going to become very evident very shortly. Now, watch what she's going to do here. So here she cites this passage and just makes this weird claim that, oh, we have apostles today. And then she's going to claim some kind of a strange anointing that, by her logic, then would make her an apostle. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. And so we see here that the fivefold ministry gifts, as listed here, are not only to equip the saints for the work of kingdom ministry, but it's to enable us, all of that together is to enable us to come into the full measure of the stature of Christ. In other words, that we'll we'll look like him, we'll talk like him, we'll walk like him, we'll be like him. Okay, so we're going to walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, be like Jesus. Why? Because... Well, the, the focus of all of the teaching for every one of those offices is Christ and what he has done. The prophets looking forward to what he will do. The apostles looking back to what he did accomplish. And now the, uh, the shepherds and the pastors and the teachers and evangelists taking up the apostolic record, teaching what Christ has done. Yeah, that's oh, okay. All right. I'm with you so far. So at the end of this, we're all going to look and sound and talk just like Jesus Okay, now it's weird that she says that because remember in the first three seconds of this video, what did she say she was going to teach you about? The ox anointing. And so as we get a little farther into this, and again, just brace yourself, just ask the question, If as we get farther into this, is this how Jesus walked and talked? <clears throat> we continue. So that is the purpose um, primarily of the fivefold ministry gifts is to equip us for the ministry so that everyone can come into the fullness of all that Christ is. So I want to talk specifically today about the apostolic anointing. And I know... Now listen, this is a slippery little argument here. I want to talk to you about the apostolic anointing. Now Patricia's trying to find a clever way to make it sound like she has this anointing. Okay, that's the goal of this ox anointing thing. So there's the setup. I want to tell you about the apostolic anointing. We continue. The word apostolic and the word apostle is a very big subject these days, and it's actually very controversial. Mm. And in church history, we have not actually had, since the book of Acts, we have not actually had in the church the apostles and the prophets um, holding their office like we have in this hour. Mm, so apparently they, their apostles and prophets are back, <laughs> to which you should say, really? There's, there's apostles on the earth. They've, they're eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus? Really? God has restored these ministry gifts 
to the church. And this is the time when the apostolic ministry is being restored to the church. Okay, so the, the, the she's making the claim the apostolic ministry is being restored. We haven't had apostles on the earth in the church since John, uh, since the apostle John died, right? Okay, all right. And now we have apostles, and, and Patricia King is, no joke, she's claiming an anointing, an apostolic anointing for herself. That's really where, she, where she's going with this, and the proof is rather ridiculous. Most definitely, and it is an office so that the whole body can become apostolic. Apostolic means sent one or the first one in, the ones that go before and build the structures. And so um, they are servants. They are ones that prepare the way. And we see through the Apostle Paul's writing, as he explains a lot about this apostolic ministry, that the apostolic ministry, true apostolic ministry is a servant. It's not like this big celebrity title or anything like that. It's yeah, I get the feeling she doesn't really understand what the Bible teaches about apostles. It's actually a servant. And I want to share with you an experience I had. Okay, now this is the segue. Now remember, she's talking about, I want to talk to you about the apostolic anointing. And now she wants to tell us about an experience that she had. Mm -hmm. This is Patricia King's experience with the ox anointing years ago uh, when we were doing a event it was in 1999 we we're doing an event called apostolic oil and um, in preparation for this event i went into the church ahead of time uh, to pray with some other intercessors and during that prayer time i felt the spirit of god come on me mm -hmm. okay and all of a sudden i I fell down on my knees and onto the floor with my hands in front of me. So, in other words, I was on all fours sort of thing. So the Spirit of God came on you, and then you're on the ground on all fours like an animal. And I started feeling in my body like I was no longer a human. I felt like I was me, but I was an ox. Instead of a human, I was an ox. <laughs> really? She was an ox. Okay, so we got Patricia King in a church in 1999, down on all fours, and she's no longer a human being. She's an ox. Right, okay. So she's now experiencing the ox anointing, during the the apostolic oil event. Uh-huh. Tell us more. Now, in the Bible, in Revelation uh, 4 and 5, we see a picture of what John saw when he went up into heaven. One of the things he saw were creatures, four living creatures. One uh, had the face of a man, another the lion, another the eagle, but then there was the ox, the face of the ox. These are the four presentations of Jesus. I believe that the ox, known as the servant, is actually a type. What we see is a symbol of the apostolic anointing. Yeah, you catch that? This is a, The ox is the symbol of the apostolic anointing. Oh, I get it. This makes Patricia King... An apostle because she was in a church down on all fours feeling like she was no longer a human, but she was an ox. Therefore, ergo, she's an apostle. And um, 
what happened to me that day is I, as I fell down on the, the, the ground and I started feeling like an ox, I felt compelled to start walking. And I was in a church building, but I was inside of a vision even though I was in the church building, I, 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 I didn't sense the building. I sensed that I was in a field because I was in like this encounter. And I was an ox walking through the field. And I could feel that I was pulling a plow. And that the ground I was plowing through was very, very hard. I could feel the resistance of it as I was pulling the plow through. Now, stop for a second. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Who's Patricia teaching about? Herself. What is she claiming for herself? An apostolic anointing. Why are we to believe she has an apostolic anointing? Because she was made to act like an ox, according to her, by God the Holy Spirit, down on all fours, and she's she can't even feel the building anymore, and she's 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 believes she's plowing a field. Let's hear a little bit more of this. Now, does this sound anything like? Matthew? Does this sound anything like Peter? Does this sound like anything like John? Like anything like the Apostle Paul or any of the things that they taught? Not at all. In fact, here's the funny thing about this, is that the closest parallel I can come up with off the top of my head is y'all remember King Nebuchadnezzar in the story of, uh, in, in, in the book of Daniel? Um, how he continued to pr- you know, basically exalt himself and take pride in himself, and God humbled him and gave him the mind of a beast as a punishment, not a blessing. True. And uh, the ground was very hard. It was hard to pull it. And I knew, though, I had this knowing that I was to till up the field so that seed could be planted, and I knew that my master needed it done. So there I was on the floor, feeling like an ox, pulling this plow through this field and the really tough soil. And then um, I heard audible voices start laughing at me and mocking me. And they were saying things like, oh, look at that dirty old ox. Oh, look at that dirty old thing. You know, and then I could feel it kick me and I could feel the, the, um, the hit of the kick. I literally felt the hit of it in my side. And uh, they were mocking me saying, oh yeah, that, that old stupid old ox. And I remember thinking, of course I'm, I'm, I'm dirty, I'm dusty because I'm working in the field for my master. And, you know, I have to be kind of like the shape I am to be able to pull this plow. And I was, I was trying to think, why, why don't they understand who I am? Why don't they understand that I've kind of got to be big and a bit awkward because of what I, I'm called to do? And, and, you know, and, and I am dusty because I'm out in the field. And, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to reconcile with myself what was going on, but they just kept, you know, mocking and kicking and, you know, uh, persecuting actually. But I knew that I had to keep my focus, that I couldn't be concerned about what they were saying. I had to just keep plowing this ground and I could feel it get harder and harder and harder, you know, and the mocking got more and the, the kicking got more. And then I was going through the field and I, I, I got to a point where I felt I couldn't go on anymore. I thought I feel tired and I don't know if I can make it. And I was discouraged, you know, and the weight of the plow seemed heavier than ever. And, and the resistance from the soil itself felt stronger than ever. And I thought, I don't know if I can make it. 
But I knew that my master needed me to finish the course. And then I looked up and there I could see in front of me the cross. And I knew that it was my destination. I, I looked at it and I thought, that's what oxes belong there, you know? And, and I thought if I could just make it a little bit further, I would, I would go to my destination. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <clears throat> this is, well, I can't put it. I got to be careful how I put this. This is nothing but bovine scatology. Yeah, I mean, this has nothing to do with any apostolic anointing. And nowhere in scripture are we led to believe that people are to become oxes and struggle in this way, you know? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> when you hear things like this, what you first, your first reaction should be, this person isn't hearing from God the Holy Spirit. This is a false prophet. They're not pointing me to Christ. And the passage that she cited was a great passage, that Christ has given us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him, into Jesus, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is it, equipped, it is equipped, when each part, working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That passage she quoted rules Patricia King out. She's not building up the body. She's not building up and equipping people in ministry and helping them grow deeper in the knowledge of Christ and in the unity of the faith. She's preaching and teaching herself in her own strange ox visions and things like that. And none of it is Christianity. It's just total delusions of nonsense. She's hearing probably from the demonic. And she believes she's hearing from the Holy Spirit. And all the while, she's leading herself farther and farther away from Jesus. And anybody who buys into her false doctrines, she's leading them farther and farther away from Jesus as well. This is a false prophet. This is a woman who is not teaching the truth. And in fact, the scriptures make it very clear that people like her, they're not Christians. They're little anti-Christs. That's what she really is. All right, we are up on our first break, running a little long today. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Anointed prayer cloths and, uh, well, enemies within the church. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Peter presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond. Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your present false prophet. Yeah, they don't stand a chance. <laughs> Not on this show. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month in the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here 
without it. All right, moving along. I've never done a <clears throat> a Brian Powers update, and thankfully, his program comes with its own music. So we'll just dive right into it. Here's the pilot episode of the Brian Powers Miracles Today television show. Well, we're going to kind of debunk, debunk the whole idea about <clears throat> anointed prayer clause and things like that. Here we go. Hello, friend. This is Brian Powers and my lovely wife, Jennifer. Welcome to Miracles Today television broadcast. Stay tuned because I believe God has a miracle for you today. You know, you do? Wow. We're living in a day and an age when people have simply given up hope. It seems like everywhere you look, people are hurting. Today, you or someone you know may be experiencing sickness, disease, depression, you know, I, I had a little bit of a low-grade cold this week. You know, I was wondering if you can help me with that. I mean, it's been kind of awful. It never, you know, I took some Zycam early in the week and kind of knocked it down, but it didn't fully go away. It kind of got into my nostrils and stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm suffering with disease. Anxiety, fear, poverty, or maybe even facing death. But I have good... <laughs> Are you facing death? I am facing death. Come to think of it, I have no clue when it's going to find me, but I'm facing it news to bring to you today. I serve a God who still heals, who still delivers, who still sets the captives free. So today I want to introduce you to the miracle working power of a living God. Really? Okay. Wow. This is quite a setup. You know, God has anointed me with the gifts of faith and miracles. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. God has anointed me. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Now, did you catch that language? God has anointed me. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24. And I'm going to read to you from Jesus' Olivet Discourse. The disciples are going to ask Jesus about the end of the age, what's coming. And Jesus is going to kind of give a little bit of an interesting answer. And the uh, the right way to look at this is that oftentimes in prophecy, there's kind of a twin focus that you can talk about it being proleptic. This is kind of one way that you can talk about it. And so, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is taken as an infant to Egypt, and then later he's, uh, Joseph is told in the dream that Herod, you know, the people trying to kill Jesus, they, they're, they're dead. And so Jesus comes out of Egypt and goes up to Nazareth. Well, plain and simple, the, the Matthew there says, and this was to fulfill the prophecy that out of Israel I have called my son. And you look at that and you, you go find the passage there and you sit there and go, yeah, but um, how is it that Matthew's applying that to Jesus when the verse he's talking about or referencing from the Old Testament seems to already have a fulfillment in the people of Israel? Ah, well, I'm glad you asked the question because oftentimes prophecy will have a twin split to it, okay? It'll, there'll be an immediate as well as a far-off or distant fulfillment, okay? So when we read the Olivet Discourse, we get a little bit of that going on here. <clears throat> so here, here's what it happens. Matthew chapter 24, I'll start at verse 1 for context, and we're going to be looking at a little at a couple of portions of the Olivet Discourse here, but here's what, Jesus, here's what it says. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But Jesus answered them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another 
that will not be thrown down. Now, you think, oh, the temple's going to be destroyed? So the disciples are thinking, that's like the end of the world, right? So as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this is a question about the end of the age and Jesus is coming, right? Well, here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, now listen to this, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. <clears throat> okay? Stop. What is, okay, so Jesus is saying many are going to come in his name claiming or saying, I am the Christ. What does that mean? It means they're coming and claiming a special anointed. They're coming in the name of Jesus, claiming to be, I am an anointed one. That's what Christos means. Christos, Christ, means anointed one. Let me give you another cross-reference within the same discourse, and it's, uh, it's found in verse 24. But let me, let me, I'll back it up just a little bit. And uh, here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for many false Christ, pseudo-Christoi, false anointed ones, and false prophets, pseudo-prophetai, these are false prophets and false Christs, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So when we look at the Olivet Discourse, what we're really looking for there is to pay attention to the words. When Jesus says that there will be false Christs, he's warning us about people who are false anointed ones. That's what we're hearing here from Brian Powers. So let me back this up. And where he claims that, uh, that special anointing for himself, he's claiming to be a Christos, a Christ. Listen again good news to bring to you today. I serve a God who still heals, who still delivers, who still sets the captives free. So today I want to introduce you to the miracle working power of a living God. You know, God has anointed me with the gifts of faith and miracles. God has anointed me. So there's the important thing. He is a little Christos. He's a little Christ. He's a little anointed one. He's a false Christ. And I believe right there where you are, right now, God will work a miracle for you right now. Right now on the canvas of your life, God will step right in and paint a beautiful future for you, full of life, full of joy. Listen, God... Yeah, God's going to paint a beautiful picture for me of my life. And notice, it's he's, he's saying God's going to do this. But because he's claiming an anointing, that he's a Christ, who is God going to do this through? Through the anointed one, through the Christ, the little anointed Christ, Brian Powers. He's, so he's talking about God, but God working specifically through this little Messiah. He doesn't care what your situation you're in or what your circumstances are. The supernatural power of God is able to work a miracle right in the middle of your mess, right in the middle of sickness, right in the middle of disease, right in the middle of your problems, right in the middle of your trials, right in the middle of your financial difficulties. Believe today in the power of the Lord and He'll step right in and work a miracle for you. Right now today, God has an answer for your life. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so God has an answer for your life. And that answer is going to come through the miracle-working power of Brian Powers. Call the number at the bottom of your screen. Let us send you the anointed prayer cloth today. Your miracle could be just a phone call away. Also, you can visit us on the web. The anointed uh, prayer cloth. Mm -hmm. Classic ploy. Ploy of hucksters, false Christs, and false prophets. At www.brianpowers.org and find out more information about our ministry. Stay up to date on exciting events and broadcast listings as well as a whole host of other resources right there on the web. I want to share the Word of God with you right now. Uh, Mark chapter 5 and verse 25 declares, A certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse when she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind touched his garment for she said if I may touch but his clothes I shall be made whole verse 29 declares and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up miraculously and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague verse 30 and Jesus immediately knowing within himself that virtue had gone out of him turned that virtue had gone out of him uh-huh. now here here's a problem okay you can see where this is going because this is all in the context of anointed prayer cloths um here's the problem Okay, we've got a historical narrative text. This is a descriptive text. Here's the question I have for you. Where in the Bible does it command us to go seeking pieces of clothing or material that we're supposed to touch in order to receive healing? The answer is there isn't one. So what he's doing is he's taking a descriptive text, ripping it out of context, and then turning it into a prescription because, of course, keep in mind, he is a little Messiah. He's a little Christ, but he's a pseudo-Christos. He's a false Christ. Him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? Verse 31, And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? But Jesus said, But look, and he looked in round to see her that had done this thing. Verse 33, But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him, and told him all the truth. Verse 34, And he said unto her daughter, Thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. Now, who is it that she had faith in, this woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5? She had faith in Jesus. That's who she had faith in. And Jesus healed her. Her Jesus saved her. That's kind of the point of that passage. Now let's see where he puts the emphasis and see if it falls on the correct syllable here. Oh, hallelujah. If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be made whole. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. She made contact with the divine through a touch point, a point of contact. Again, in Acts chapter 19. Now notice what he's doing here. He's claimed an anointing for himself. You know, so he's basically he's saying this woman made contact with the divine through a touch point, and that was Jesus's, um, you know, you know, the hem of his garment, right? Well, what this guy is doing by extension is claiming that same miracle-working power, that same kind of anointing for himself. This guy is a little Christ. In verse twelve, 
I want to share the word of the Lord with you. The scripture says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12, So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs. Or Another descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. Aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Oh, hallelujah. They, they brought handkerchiefs and aprons. A touch point. A point of contact. You know, God moves through a touch point. Yeah, that's not the point of those passages. God healed those people by faith. And keep in mind, in the first instance, we're talking about the real Christ, Jesus. And the second point, we're talking about the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection and a holder of the apostolic office and had the ability as part of that office to work miracles. We don't have those same powers promised to us. Oh, hallelujah. A point of contact. God has instructed Jennifer and I to pray and anoint these special cloths. God has instructed you and your wife to anoint special cloths. Really? Yeah, I don't believe it. You're a pseudo-Christo. You're a false Messiah. You are a false Christ. You are a false anointed one. And to send out to those in need of a miracle. Call the number on your screen and we'll send you the anointed prayer cloth free of charge. Or you can write to us at Brian Powers Ministries, P.O. Box 681, Columbus, Ohio, 4321. Yeah, I'm sure you can get your anointed prayer cloth for free. And once they have your address, oh man, they'll probably hound you for money like there's no tomorrow. Or visit us online at brianpowers.org. Whatever you have need of, use this point of contact and watch the power of God begin to move in your situation today. Call, write, visit the website, whatever you have to do, but make contact with this anointing today. Don't wait. With this anointing. All now, the faster you call, the faster we can rush you the free anointed prayer call. All right, so what is that? <clears throat> well, we've been talking about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And, you know, the, Christ himself is the anointed one. And so what we have here is somebody who's dethroned and deposed Christ and is a usurper. He is one claiming an, an, a special anointing from himself. And he now is your touch point between you and God. He now is your anointed one, your Christ. So you want a healing? You go to Brian Powers, not to Jesus. You go to Brian Powers. You you need, you know, you need the canvas of your life to have a a rosier painting uh, painted on it. Well, you don't go to Jesus. You go to the anointed one, Brian Powers, this false Christ. And he now is the one who's going to make sure, because he has a special arrangement with God, to make all of this possible. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus warned us about. And if you understand that when somebody is claiming an anointing, they are claiming to be a Christ, then you will see them for what they are, and that is a false Christ. Moving along. Time for money grubbing no televangelist no update. Don't want no kissing. Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the hall of fame. 
just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that lettuce, hear me holler. Give me buckets full of ducats, let me walk around and waller in Mazuma. Elder Nero, wanna be a millionaire? Give me money, 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 money. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit? That's made out of oot and whistle the word and green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And there's some I can inveigle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. Back collector, I'm a paper bill inspector, I'm a savage for that cabbage man to me is golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me, spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous unum, I wanna be the guy that they send out to prove them. Oh, give me money! Dr. Teeth and Money, Money, Money. That's our money-grubbing televangelist update music. And uh, today we're going to be uh, heading down south to uh, Sydney, Australia, to the Hillsong Conference. And uh, listen to Brian Houston. Well, tell us about, well, that Muslims and Christians serve the same God. Hmm? Yeah, and we'll put some context in this, and this is uh, thanks to the uh, intrepid work of the folks out there at the HillsongChurchWatch.com website, HillsongChurchWatch.com. They keep an eye on the uh, heresies and latest bizarre things being said and done by the good folks at Hillsong. (laughs) I shouldn't say good folks. Here's the great white shark himself. Uh, Brian Houston from the Hillsong Conference. And like I said, this is some context, and we're going to hear him in this video say that Muslims and Christians serve the same God. Here we go. The way you see God decides what you believe God does, what you believe God loves, and what you believe God blesses, where his favor will be. So I couldn't encourage any leader who wants to live purposefully and who wants to build a church that reflects the heart of God, I couldn't encourage you more to make sure that your view of the master is through a new covenant, New Testament lens, that we look at the Old Testament, which is so full of beauty and power and example and wonder, and is so much of the whole tenor of God's message, that we need to look at it through the lens of the resurrection and the cross and back into it from where we stand now and not from where they stood then. Okay, that sounds kind of right. Yeah, we definitely want to have our view of God shaped by the apostolic preaching and teaching found in the New Testament. I'm fully in support of that. Although this idea that how you view God then you know, decides what God is going to do in your life, that's word of faith heresy. Because otherwise it's going to affect your ability to be purposeful and building and leading and bringing release and bringing freedom and seeing those things God puts in your heart come to pass. How do you view God in a desert? There's two types of birds. There's vultures and there's hummingbirds. All right, so this is the next part. And how... 
do you view God in a desert? There's vultures and there's hummingbirds. Who are these referring to? One lives off dead carcasses, rotting meat. The other lives off the beautiful, sweet nectar in a particular flower on a particular desert plant. In the same desert, they both find what they're looking for. Do you know, take it all the way back into the Old Testament and the Muslim and you, we actually serve the same God. Our- uh, <laughs> okay. oh, wow. Okay. I knew he was bad, but um, that's breathtakingly awful. Okay. Got to back this up. I, ha- I have no idea. Is, is he comparing Muslims to vultures? <laughs> oh, man. And apparently Muslims and Christians serve the same God. Okay, hang on a second. I'm going to back this up just a smidge. And uh, let's take another run at this and see if we can figure out what he's talking about. They're looking for. Do you know, take it all the way back into the Old Testament and the Muslim and you, we actually serve the same God, Allah, to a Muslim, to us, Abba Father, God. Uh, man, that is horrible. No, it, it, i got to stop. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. That's ridiculous. Okay. The reason that's ridiculous is because Allah doesn't have a son. Allah is not part of a trinity. Okay. Allah stands alone all by himself. And their Jesus is not the son of God. You know, he's a prophet of Allah. Okay. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, who has existed from eternity into eternity, the only begotten Son who pre-existed as God from eternity past because he is God, right? And uh, and so, yeah, no, Christians and Muslims do not serve or believe in the same God. For to make such a statement shows that Brian Houston <clears throat> doesn't know what on earth he's talking about. And of course, through history, those views have changed greatly. But let's make sure that we view God through the eyes of Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty of a Savior, the loving, open, inclusive arms of a loving God. And that way we'll lead out of that and you'll be purposeful about your leadership and you'll draw people just like the Lord Jesus always does through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I mean, it's not even lucid. I mean, this segment of his statement, uh, I mean, it's unbelievable that he would make the statement that Christians and Muslims serve the same God. Allah to the Muslim and, and to us, Abba, Father, God. Whew. Wow. That is heresy and blasphemy of the highest rank. There you go. I mean, if you're ever wondering, uh, you know, <clears throat> Brian Houston, sound teacher? No, not at all. Brian Houston, full-blown heretic and uh, a man who's not qualified to be teaching anybody not even your preschoolers in in you know Sunday school he's not qualified to be teaching anybody anything about the Christian faith he's a false teacher okay last but not least today here from the charisma news um, website headline reads Mark Driscoll plagiarism controversy shows an enemy within All right, so the Mark Driscoll plagiarism controversy shows an enemy within. Who would the enemy be? Hmm. 
How much you want to bet it's people like me and Janet Mefford? Yeah, that's the enemy that this this particular hit piece is going after. Uh, here's what the story, how it reads. This is actually just a straight-up press release that was released earlier by a PR firm that was just run whole hog by the uh, Charisma News website. A public relations strategist who assists churches and ministries with issues and reputation management says that while the mainstream media is becoming more anti-church, the greatest threat comes from within. Principal of Mercer PR, Lyle Mercer, says the current spate of negative publicity against Seattle's Mars Hill Church is being driven by Christians. <clears throat> Let me correct that. The current spate of negative publicity against Mars Hill Church is being driven by Mark Driscoll, not by Christians. It's being driven by Mark Driscoll, okay, in his impenitence. Here's the quote. Quote, the American church is splintered on both theological and ideological grounds, which leads many within the church to focus more on criticizing other Christians than looking at their own lives, Mercer notes. The attacks against Pastor Mark Driscoll that were started by radio host Janet Mefford and are still ongoing have caused a lot of damage to both Mars Hill and the church at large. This should be a wake-up call to other churches. Really? So... The attack against Mark Driscoll was started by Janet Mefford. No, she caught him and publicly challenged him regarding plagiarism. And she's since been exonerated due to the fact that the Resurgence book now has proper citations in it, which was her whole point. As a journalist, she understands what, uh, what plagiarism is. She worked a copy desk for many years as a journalist. So, in fact, go back and listen to my interview with Janet Mefford. We discussed this uh, last week, I believe. So who's the enemy within the church? Well, it's Janet Mefford. She's the enemy. So let me continue. The next quote, quote, churches are usually aware of negative mainstream publicity, but often ignore the danger of the enemy within, he adds. Enemy within. Janet Mefford's an enemy within the church. Mercer says entire ministries have been created around trashing other ministries, and new media gives them more exposure than ever before. The instant digital and social media age provides a forum for those Christians who see themselves as the watchmen of the church, and the result is endless attacks on higher-profile churches and ministries mercer explains <clears throat> no actually i have a different way of interpreting this the media has made it possible the the new media the internet has made it possible for the media monopoly to be broken and for people to actually have an equal voice and a say and to challenge the false teaching, false doctrine, false methodologies and sins of high-profile pastors and teachers. Notice here in Mercer's retelling, uh, Janet Mefford, she's evil. She's the enemy within. She and of course me, you know people like me also. We're, we're the enemies within the church, and that this is going to be a wake up call. This is the endless attacks on high profile churches. Well, maybe the reason why these uh, high profile churches are being attacked is not because they're high profile. It's because the reason they're high profile is because they're itching ears. They're scratching itching ears. They've they're they have abandoned teaching sound doctrine and are telling people what they want to hear rather than teaching the truth. Their methodologies are corrupt. What they're doing is saying things they shouldn't say in order to gain a buck from people. They have a profit motive, and that you know, and that's the reason why they're saying and doing all these strange things that don't belong in the Christian church. <clears throat> so. 
Let me continue. Mercer is an Australian who spent six years living in the U.S. before returning to Australia to establish Mercer PR. He still deals with clients in the U.S. and advises high-profile churches and ministry as well as corporate clients. What are, by the way, one of Mercer's clients, Hillsong. Uh-huh. Hillsong. So I, I wonder if uh, Mercer there agrees with uh, Brian Houston that uh, Christians and Muslims serve the same God. I mean, was that a theological problem there that warranted criticism, or was that just a PR blunder? I mean, it just makes you wonder. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end the week off with two fantastically great sermons. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end off the week with two good sermons. One by Brent Kuhlman, the other by Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Oh, man. These are just fantastic. Got to tell you, the name of Rohde's sermon is a bit provocative. Give you the details in a second.
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via Trinity Lutheran Church, Murdoch, Nebraska, Brent Kuhlman presiding, as well as Faith Lutheran Capistrano Beach, California, Pastor Jeremy Rohde presiding. First sermon we'll be listening to is from Brent Kuhlman, and it is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, The Temptation of Jesus in the Wilderness by the Devil. And then sermon number two is entitled, "If God, What If God Hates You? And is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 by Jeremy Rohde. I'll read the passages before each sermon. In fact, let me go ahead and kill the music here. And here is uh, the, the text that forms the basis of Pastor Kuhlman's sermon entitled, His Victory is for You. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, which reads, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Here's Pastor Brett Kuhlman in his sermon entitled, His Victory is for You. Here we go. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, you know, little did you know it when you came to church here today, but I'm here to tell you that your salvation is at stake. Really. I'm not joking when I say that. Does that startle you? Good. Perhaps finally I've got your attention for a sermon. But there's more. Even more shocking. Here it is. Not only is your salvation at stake today, but your salvation does not depend on you. You are purposely left out of the battle to win and accomplish your salvation. You don't participate at all, not even for a millisecond. Someone has to fight for you and win your salvation For you, someone, you know, like that uh, little shepherd boy who a long time ago fought for the nation of Israel and who defeated the enemy. You remember the giant Goliath, that Philistine? Shepherd boy David, against all odds, slingshotted a stone into Goliath's forehead and made him shorter by a head. And the giant was defeated. And David's victory was... Israel's victory. And now we see a champion who has come to fight, a descendant of that little boy, King David, Mary's boy, who grew up whittling and carving wood with his stepfather, Joseph. And I'm here to tell you that your salvation depends, depends on him. 
and how well he battles another monster like Goliath, Satan himself. Jesus has volunteered to fight for you, to save you. And his salvific work for you comes under full frontal satanic attack. Who will win the battle? Will Jesus? If so, you are saved. But what if Satan wins the battle? Well, then you're lost, unforgiven, and damned in your sin. And so we better see how it goes. There he is, dripping wet from his baptism in the Jordan. You remember that, don't you? The Heavenly Father preached quite a sermon that day on our Lord's baptism. And the sermon went like this. Do you remember? The Father said, do you see Jesus? That's my boy. He is my beloved and priceless son. Oh, I'm deeply pleased with him. There you have it. The Father's categorical proclamation that Jesus is his beloved Son. Let there be no doubts, brothers and sisters. Do not listen to any other words. Oh, you were listening, right? Jesus is God's Son. The Father has had his say-so. There are no better words than what the Father preached at the Jordan River. This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with him. And then, as quickly as you can say, Bob's your uncle, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lighted upon Jesus at his Jordan River baptism, throws a big hanging curveball, something that you'd never expect. You're buckled at the knees and you're shaking your head in dismay. Why? Well, because according to the text, the Spirit marshals his Son of Godness, Jesus, smack dab into the desolate desert the wasteland wilderness, no food or water in sight. Forty days and forty nights, Son of God Jesus goes without a meal or a drink. Can you imagine? He's starving, absolutely famished. He's feeble. He's faint, puny, and pathetic. He's got to be at the end of his rope. And at this point in his life, He is extremely vulnerable. The wilderness is Satan's turf. Satan's crib. And so he prowls around seeking whom he may devour. And lo and behold, he sees none other than the at-risk, fragile, helpless, and all-alone Son of God, Jesus. And so it is time to put Jesus, Son of Godness, to the test. Time to defeat this descendant of David and put the world ruthlessly and tyrannically under full satanic control. And so Satan, the red dragon, pulls a Garden of Eden, version 2.0. You know, it worked before, so why not try it again? You remember, don't you? We heard it earlier. Adam and Eve, they were pushovers. They were not content to remain creatures by trusting God the Father and the Father's Word. Especially the Father's Word that had been preached to them. Instead, they believed another sermon. Satan and his preaching. Did God actually say, huh? 
That's what the serpent diabolically asks. And Satan essentially says, well, of course he didn't. You can't trust God the Father. He's a liar. He's holding out on you, Adam and Eve. And he's holding you back. Satan tells them, I've got better words for you. Better words for you. Oh, the sky is the limit, Adam and Eve. Live up to your potential. You can be... Remember what he said? You can be God. Divinity is within your reach. Divinity is within you, he told Adam and Eve. You can now call the shots as a God within her. I give you my word. And of course, the rest is history, as they say. A world has been wrecked. It is now a chaotic mess. Everything is ruined. A world is held in bondage to sin and death. The epistle put it this way. Many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam. A world is now at complete odds with God because our first parents believed a lie. They trusted a false word. They listened to another sermon, Satan's. And so, as the epistle said, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. So, you know, why not put Jesus, the second Adam, and his son of Godness to the test? I mean, it sure looks like this this Jesus could crack. (laughs) Where's the Father now? And so Satan goes to work. Will Jesus now live according to his Father's sermon at his baptism? Or will Jesus abandon his son of Godness for a lie? Your salvation, brothers and sisters, your salvation rides on how Jesus fares. Satan attacks him with three gargantuan temptations, all putting his son of godness to the test. Will Jesus, in his weakened condition, be able to withstand the devil's well-planned onslaught? In his weakened state, What weapon does Jesus have at his disposal to fend off the red dragon's dicey temptations? Did you notice? How does Jesus resist turning the rocks into piping hot loaves of bread? How does he resist leaping off the pinnacle of the temple into cotton soft angel wings? How does he resist bowing the knee? That's all he had to do. One time, one time, just a little bow. How does he resist that? Did he sling a smooth stone into Satan's forehead? No. What did he do? He spoke. The almighty weapon comes from his mouth. He speaks God's word. Against the devil. A man does not live by bread alone, Jesus says, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God alone. Those are all quotes from where? Deuteronomy. From Israel's history of wandering in the wilderness. When Israel, like Adam, would not trust God's word for her life, when she would not trust God's promises, 
when Adam, Eve, and Israel wouldn't and didn't, it all ended so badly and so tragically and so hellaciously. But now with Jesus, the second and the last Adam, and Israel reduced to one, it's a whole different ballgame. Jesus puts his entire life, his entire existence, his entire ministry into his Father's hands by trusting his Father's word. You are my son. I am well pleased with you. That's what the Father preached at his baptism. Son of God, Jesus will stay the course. He will live as God's son. And that means being obedient, living under his Father's word, trusting his Father's word of promise. Listen to it again. A man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test and worship the Lord your God alone. And so Jesus sends the red dragon reeling by speaking God's Holy Spirit-filled word. Jesus, like the little shepherd boy David, wins the battle against the Goliath like Satan. Jesus is victorious. He defeats Satan by trusting his Father's word. And that victory that Jesus won against the devil counts for you. He did that for you. In this battle, your salvation has been done. Jesus comes as your substitute to win your salvation. And where are you? You're put on the bench. Just watch him fight. And the route is on. The devil didn't stand a chance, never did. And soon Jesus will give the red dragon the crushing and final blow, which is Calvary, where he wins salvation for you entirely and completely. But now Satan is furious at this point in Jesus' ministry, and he rages on the earth since he's been kicked out of heaven forever. And so now where does Satan attack? Hmm? He attacks you. And his game plan hasn't changed. The satanic onslaught against you is this. Did God really say, did God really say that the cross really counts for you? I mean, do the math, Satan tells you. Your sins and Jesus' death. I mean, your sins, count them. Oh, that's right. You can't because there's so many of them. <laughs> so many that you don't even know the half of them. And all that sin of yours, oh, it's deadly and it's toxic. Granted, Satan tells you, granted, you know, Jesus gave it his best shot. But, you know, let's face it. Your sin is just too much for the crucified. So, you know, you'd better just follow me instead of that, that slain, weak lamb. You know, you can be a little divinity with my help. Yes, that's right. I'll help you reach your potential. Jesus can't. And he won't. Look at you. You're a disaster. Brothers and sisters, there's only one way to fight off the red dragon's assaults against you. Do you know how to do it? Do you know how to do it? It is the sword of the Spirit, 
and the Spirit's sword is Christ's word of promise. So how do you do battle? Here's how you do. You say, listen here, Satan. I'm a sinner. That's right. That's true. I'm a sinner. And I'm pretty good at it. But Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And that means that he died for me and that I am forgiven. That's what he says. In addition, Satan, Jesus promises that those who believe in him have eternal life. Satan, Jesus has given me his unthwartable word of promise that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Satan, I tell you, Jesus personally pledges that his body and blood and the sacrament are given for me and for the forgiveness of all my sin. So, Mr. Red Dragon, leave me alone. Go talk to Jesus. He is truly God's Son. And He is Son of God for me, totally and completely. Oh, what's that, Mr. Red Dragon? What did you say? You don't want to go see Jesus and hear His Word? I knew that. I knew that. So get lost. Buzz off. Slink into your hole. Jesus died for me. He rose for me. He's covered me with all of his obedience and he's cleansed me with his divine blood. All my sins forgiven. He's told me that. He's promised me. What's that, Satan? What did you say? You don't want to hear that? Too bad. Too bad, Satan. So take a hike. Take a hike, you slimy, ugly, defeated snake. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Son of God for me. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Tell you that he has that John the Baptist thing going on with him. <clears throat> anyway, second sermon, second sermon, uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde. His sermon, again, provocative title, is entitled, What If God Hates You? And it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, which reads this way. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Amen, amen. I say to you, we speak of that which we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde and his sermon on this text entitled, What If God Hates You? Here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But love is also jealous. Love is angry. Love says words that will cut you to the heart. Love rebukes and ridicules. Love scorns and excludes. Love even hates. And if one day the gates of heaven were slammed shut in your face, it's love that would do it. For love also damns. Pastor, how can you say such terrible things? Especially when just moments ago, we heard Jesus say that God so loves the world that He gave His only Son. God doesn't hate anything. God is love. Loves everyone. Loves everything. Love, Pastor. Love, love, love. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. In fact, we poor sinful beings have it so backward. We think only as if love and hate were opposites. But God is love. God is the essence of love. God is the definition of love. And God hates. From Proverbs chapter 6 we read, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. Wow, that's kind of crazy. God hates things? Well, I guess he just hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Well, guess again. From Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. <laughs> what? The Bible says that? God hates all evildoers? God hates the sin and he hates the sinner? Well, I'll be damned. <laughs> yes, and it's love that damns you. For God is love. And the commandments that condemn you, they are love. The law that pronounces your death sentence is love. The law that casts you out of God's good creation for eternity is love. For this love condemns and excludes all sinners because it condemns and excludes all evil. You see, when we talk about a loving God and speculate about what a loving God would do, often enough we're simply imagining a God that is every bit as evil as we are. We think that because God is love, He simply 
winks at all but the most heinous of sins. And of course, none of my sins are all that heinous. On the contrary, because God is a loving God, in fact, because God is love, God hates all sins and all sinners. We are all enemies of His love because we are incompatible with His love. The love of God ought to strike terror in our hearts. It is a love only for what is righteous and perfect and good. It is a love that excludes each and every one of us because we are not righteous and perfect and good. Nicodemus wasn't an evil Pharisee. He was a church-going man. He partook of the Old Testament sacraments, studied his Bible, believed in God, prayed. Not only is Nicodemus polite to Jesus, what he says is actually pretty nice. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was the type of man you'd look at and think, if anyone's got it together, it's him. And you'd be right. Which is why our Lord's words to Nicodemus are so jarring. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And just to make sure that Nicodemus knows these words are targeting him, Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In case you missed it, Jesus just slammed the doors of heaven shut in a good man's face. And Nicodemus is reeling, marveling, saying stupid things because he can't believe what his ears are hearing. Even for us, it's really a jaw-dropping exchange because in Nicodemus, we see humanity at its best, politely approaching God. And in a word, God less than politely says, all that you have and are is nothing. All that you have and are is not good enough. You must be completely different, so utterly different, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There sits polite and godly Nicodemus. And Jesus slams the doors of heaven shut and tells Nicodemus that he is blind. And of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to rebuke and ridicule Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I don't know about you, but the Jesus in my heart is a little nicer than the Jesus in the Bible, especially toward me. Have you seen that show called Undercover Boss? I swear the CEO goes undercover to work as one of his lowly workers, a cashier or something. 
Imagine if Jesus went undercover as a pastor in a congregation. Imagine if he had this exchange with Nicodemus and everyone heard about it. Now, thinking that Jesus was just some lowly pastor, because that's his disguise, the district president would call him in and chastise undercover Jesus for being so unloving to Nicodemus. You have to love your people in order for them to listen to you. Imagine Jesus' face. An elder would pull undercover Jesus aside and ask him to, you know, take it down a notch. We have to speak the truth, but speak it in love, you know. A lifelong member of the congregation would take undercover Jesus out to lunch and say, what you did back there to Nicodemus was so unloving, it's nothing my Jesus would ever do. It's not so far from the truth because there's something very wrong in the church today. If Christians actually paid attention to how Jesus is in the Bible and what Jesus says and does in the Bible, most of them would say that Jesus, I believe in, would never say or do that. He would never slam the doors of heaven shut in a sinner's face or ridicule a man for his lack of theological knowledge. How unloving! No. How very different our definition of love is from God's. For Jesus is God. And Jesus is love. And Jesus offends. His love is jealous. His love is angry. It is a love that says words that will cut you to the heart. It is a love that will rebuke you and ridicule you, scorn you and exclude you. It is a love that drives you to despair of yourself and all that you are so that you can receive Him and all that He is. By contrast, it's our sappy, mushy, completely unbiblical understanding of God's love that leads us to think that anything less than winsome, anything less than nice, anything that's the slightest bit offensive is unloving. Jesus is love and Jesus is offensive. Repent. In the Old Testament, there is a time when God's people were bitten by poisonous snakes. God sent them because of the people's sin. The people were going to die and there was nothing that they could do about it. But there was something God was willing to do about it. He told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole that whoever believed and looked upon it would be saved. We are all like Nicodemus. Under the pious facade that we present to everyone else, under the pious facade, we try to hide it like it was some great secret. But the truth is we have been bitten by the serpent called death. God sent it because of our sins. We are going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. But there is something that God is willing to do about it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So there's a problem with how we read John 3.16 and the notion of love that we import into it. God so loves the world. He's just infatuated with the world. He can't help himself. The world, my son, i got to give my son. I love you so much. No. God's love is ready to throw all that's evil in this world into everlasting fire, including you, including me. But in this way, and only in this way, God has chosen to love you. He lifts up His Son on the cross that whoever believes in Him might be saved. This is what Jesus means when He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Here, the word so means in this way. Like when you say to someone, Is that so? For God, in this way, loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse isn't talking about how God loves the world so much. No. God loves the world in this way and only in this way. He gives His beloved Son that whoever believes in Him may not perish. But anyone who does not believe in Him will perish. The love of God in Christ Jesus is our only hope. The love of God apart from Christ Jesus damns us. God's love for us is not a mini-splendored thing, but a mini-splintered thing. The blood-soaked splinters of a specific wooden cross, soaked in the real blood of a young Hebrew man, innocent blood, that is shed on account of your sins and for the atonement of them. This, and only this, is God's love that saves sinners. God's love that forgives all sins. God's love for you. God's love is not warm and fuzzy feelings deep in His fatherly heart. Nor is it an almost romantic infatuation with sinners that has God doing all that He can to keep from offending us or turning us off. No, God's love for you is not a sappy, mushy, sentimental kind of thing at all. It's a Good Friday kind of thing. God's love is incarnate, infleshed, only in the flesh that is pierced by thorn and stabbed by nail, only in Christ and Him crucified, only in the torn dead body of His own beloved Son. God loves you in this way and only in this way. And in this way, through this blood, God declares you be righteous, perfect, and good. 
This is the love of God apart from the law. This is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And just maybe, just maybe, Jesus knows what he's doing. Because after that cross, who shows up to take care of his dead body? But the same Nicodemus who he speaks to here. The truth is, you can't save the world. In fact, you can't fix a single other person, let alone change or fix yourself. We have no hope but the blood of Jesus. And that is enough. For His blood is the fullness of God's love. Because of His blood, God loves the ungodly. Well, I'll be damned. But actually, because of Jesus, you won't be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.